welcome to the... <laughs> I haven't done this before because usually it's, <laughs> it's Stephen, does it? All right, I'll go again. Hello, welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Aslak Hellesai. Um, this week we're joined by Ulrika Mongren. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Great. Um, and we're also joined by my colleague Matt Wynn. Hi. Hello, Matt. Uh, so, Matt, you decided to invite Ulrika. Can you tell the, the listeners a little bit about why you wanted to have her on the podcast? Yeah, so last year at QCUP, um, we got this uh, talk proposal about uh, illustrating scenarios, and I was quite intrigued. And then um, when we actually went to Ulrika's talk, um, I was just delighted. It was like it was one of my highlights of the conference. It was a really well-delivered talk and really fascinating story about um, kind of just doing something different, like not just doing things the way everybody else does them, but it was like a really ingenious idea and really creative and thoughtful. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting. So uh, Ulrika's coming back to QCOP this year, and I wanted to find out what she's into at the moment, what's, what, what new ideas she's having now. Ulrika, do, uh, do you want to start by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and um, what, you, what you're currently doing? All right. Um, I've been... I'm a tester for quite some time. I came into testing because when I was studying at uh, towards my master in, of science in information technology, all the all the people who had programmed before were always telling everyone that testing is so incredibly boring and that they would never, ever, ever want to work with testing. And for some weird reason, that sort of intrigued me. So I was like, can it really be that bad? And it sounds kind of important, doesn't it? And so I tried that out a bit. I got some some a summer job as a tester and so forth. And I realized that I really love it. Uh, it's a lot of fun. What do you love about it? What do you think is fun about testing? At that point in time, I think the, the most fun was sort of the the, the bug hunt and the, the chase or finding a bug and trying to sort of be the detective. Uh, the detective was trying to see where does it come from and why is this happening to begin with and trying to reproduce it and um, looking at different angles and see what does it happen here or does it happen there and I really like that and then when I uh, worked more with it it turns out that it wasn't just a bug hunt it was more about the teams and um, and noticing that I can help them um, I don't want to say prevent bugs but make stuff which has higher quality by asking lots of questions and those kind of things. And it's really a lot of fun when you notice that, hey, just because someone raised this question, we're not doing this weird stuff which we were going to do like a second ago. Uh, and now we notice that we don't have to or we shouldn't. So I was just at this open space that we ran for a big customer of ours in the States recently who were going through a transition to BDD. And one of the things that came up at that conference was um, for the manual testers were worried about how are we going to learn to do test automation? How are we going to learn Java? Because in this new world, surely um, we have to now write uh, automation code all the time because there are no manual tests anymore. And um, I, I've, I had some very interesting conversations to try and kind of uh, – explain that it didn't need to be like that but I, I wonder what would you have said if you'd have been in those conversations what's your perspective on the role of a tester mm -hmm. I see a lot of people who are used to being that the sort of 
they see themselves as the user's advocate and they're sort of like the final barrier before release in a sense. Mm. Uh, And they really enjoy being in in that position because it feels like they're doing valuable work. They're standing in between like good or failure in a sense. But when you're working in, in more of an agile environment and when you're starting to talk about scenarios and examples, you hopefully notice that that is also valuable work to use your expertise of, you know, because you always, you sort of, you're sort of compiling a list of things which usually go wrong in your head when you're testing. And so you know that languages is usually a problem, or if we run this in another Java version, it's going to be a problem, or if we do this, it's going to be a problem. And so realizing that I can ask those questions and it's going to help everyone. And that makes you feel valuable as well. So I think I would say that you need, you might need to find other ways to feel valuable, but I think that those are also very rewarding. So Erika, you mentioned that initially when you, when you got into testing, uh, you, you felt it was rewarding for, to find bugs. Um, and then you mentioned something that I thought was quite interesting. You, you said, um, said something about preventing bugs and that sounds quite different to me uh, from finding bugs what what exactly do you mean by that it's a bit awkward to say preventing bugs in a sense it, it usually helps people understand what it is but um, I mean exploring the topic that we're going to implement or the domain at which we're going to be working in so before bef- before the developers write any code yeah exactly and when we do that, try to see, is there, are there any misunderstandings going on here? Are we really understanding the problem or not? Mm-hmm. Because if you sort of, if you do realize at that point in time, that, hang on, this is not exactly what we want to do. Um, you might have, you might be able to sort of well, prevent the bug in a sense. Um, but also sort of, I feel that part of it is that, but part of it is also helping everyone see the bigger picture and have them keep that in mind while they're continuing developing. Yeah. So is this something you, I don't know, do do you work, are you a consultant? Do you go on different projects or do you mostly work with one team? Uh, I'm a recovering consultant. (laughs) Can you recover for that? For a year. (laughs) (laughs) So you, okay. uh, But you've seen lots of different teams. Do you, um, because what, what you're describing here sounds a bit like, um, it's a shift from traditional testing where testers test the code has been written. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what you're describing sounds like testers are involved much earlier in the process. Do, do you see that in use in many places? Um, you know, is this, is this something they've seen in, in a different, sorry, I'm just going to repeat that. Uh, is this the fact, uh, or, um, I'm not expressing myself very well. Have you seen in a lot of places that testers get involved before the code is written. Um, yes, and I feel that it's a good development because in a sense when you have, what I notice sometimes is that you're in a team and they say that we need to raise quality, let's, let's hire a tester. And the weird thing that happens then is that everyone sort of relaxes a bit. So everyone is like, oh, great, we have a tester now. Um, so maybe I don't need to run this on my machine before I release it to testing or whatever you would say um, 
because there's someone else who's going to be there and catch those bugs. Yeah. So if you see your tester instead as someone can um, be in that first part of it uh, and coach you through uh, thinking of different scenarios and those things, uh, I think you're much better off than, um, than if you expect them to save you from your mistakes. So is this the sense in which testers can be a liability in your, your new talk? Yeah. That's what your talk's about, isn't it? I, I thought it was quite a good contentious title. <laughs> but I noticed it in myself as well. I worked once in a, in a company where we had a system verification department. So what they would do is that whenever we were done with our stuff, they would integrate a bunch of components together and then it would verify that it was still okay. And even though I was working with testing and I sort of take pride in my, in my craft and I do it properly and I try to test stuff, I always had this little thing in my in the back of my head telling me that, well, if there's a real problem, they're going to find it in system verification anyway. So I think it's sort mm. of a human reaction. So th- that th- that explanation took uh, took only a, a minute or so. What what else are you going to talk about for the other uh, twenty nine minutes that you got? I'm blood. Uh, now, I, I'm, what I want to do then is, after presenting this idea, I, I really, I'm really annoyed when people just tell people that uh, you shouldn't do this or uh, this is a bad idea um, without giving them options. So the rest of the talk is basically options on what can you do um, if you are a tester, if you're working with a tester to make sure that you're, you, you're aware of the risk and make sure that you're not falling in that trap. So I have a bunch of different techniques um, that I'll present. And I think we should leave it there because we don't want to spoil it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, but I guess maybe one of those techniques might be um, getting people to stand up and around a whiteboard with some colour pens and draw a picture. Exactly. Yeah. Can you can you tell us like where where you were when you first discovered that as an as an idea for for something to do? What like what happened? I've always been trying to get my teams to to talk about examples or scenarios because I feel that it's so powerful when you just ask someone, "Well, wait, did you mean it like this?" And then you give an example of something, and they'll go like, "Oh." Yeah, yeah, but no, not every time, just when it's in this situation. And you sort of you trigger all those conversations, and I really, really enjoy those. And I've never been able to actually get to the automating part of it. <laughs> um, but at least I can get people to, to start writing stuff on the whiteboard. Um, but I feel that it's it's sometimes been difficult for me to encourage people to do that, because I know that the result is going to be this whiteboard full of text and we're all going to be exhausted um and since i don't really tell them that hey hang on we're going to do this is going to be bdd or we're going to do specification by example now i just uh, lure them into writing examples um it feels like i need i need it to be fun as well i just need it to be something which they're going to think like oh this is great let's do this every time we're working on a feature and so what I, I, 
have um, a friend who's working with graphic recording and how she takes notes by drawing things. And um, you notice also a lot of people at conferences who are taking notes by just drawing instead. Yeah, ske- sketch noting is what they call it. Sketch noting. It's a, it's a thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this could be the perfect combination. Just have some fun, draw some pictures, and still do the work, which we I feel is valuable to do. I'm trying to picture how this works in in the project room. So this is so you gather around the whiteboard uh, and you draw uh, pictures on the whiteboard as part of planning how to implement the story. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So who who's typically present around the, around this whiteboard? What kind of roles? Um, it would be in my cases have been product owner and team members. So developers and testers and uh, product owner. Yeah. I could really see a, a UX person in there as well if you had one. So everybody's co-located? Uh, in, in my experience, that has been a case, yeah. Yeah. I know that a lot of teams out there are, are distributed. Um, they're either distributed you know, in different rooms in the same building or different floors, or, but sometimes different cities, sometimes even different countries. Um, do you have any experience with that and using this technique in a distributed team? I haven't yet, but I'm working currently with a distributed team, so it's going to be interesting to see if we can pull it off. Yeah. Actually, we're a distributed team at Cucumber, and we, we're experimenting with um, you know, similar, similar things. We have some distributed whiteboard tools that we're using and so on. You can name drop it, I think. Limnu is the thing that we like at the moment. Yeah, we yeah we're using Limnu. That's cool, um, and we just have, i you know big iPad Pros and Apple pencils, mm-hmm. and then we have a um, a voice maybe maybe um, Google Hangouts on the side, so we can actually see each other and talk as well. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the same as being in the same room, but it's it's a good it's a good alternative, I think. It sounds like a setting where it, where it could work well to actually draw pictures to get maybe a bit more understanding of what you're trying to do. Because the thing with pictures is you can use size and positioning as well. So if you're writing a sentence, um, it gives you a certain amount of information. Mm-hmm. But if you're, you're positioning pictures on top of each other or something is bigger than the other, you can show that it's growing, that it's getting smaller or those things and you can use colors as well i think that could give you even more information well the thing i that struck me about your talk i was sort of discovering this idea about from design thinking about um divergent and convergent thinking and how examples are really a great way to encourage divergent thinking which is what we're trying to do when we're doing deliberate discovery before we do development we're trying to hunt around and see as much of the unseen stuff in the domain as possible so um and i think that one of the things you spoke about was how that that sort of playful almost childish um state of mind that you that you can get into when you're drawing pictures can actually help you to be more creative and see more of those unknown unknowns you're you're stepping a, a bit out of your comfort zone uh, because you're usually a lot of people aren't very comfortable with drawing in in public, which is really a shame because um, it shouldn't really be that way. Sometimes when, sometime during our childhood, we're told that there is a skill in drawing and that 
it can either do it well or not. And we sort of assume that we have to be artists to be able to do it. But if you get sort of outside of your comfort zone, I think you might be a bit more open to other things as well. I did a retrospective uh, once where I, I, um, I encouraged the participants to sort of draw their, um, their life story, basically, so from childhood until where they were now. Um, and people were really opening up. And my theory is, and I have no evidence whatsoever to, to um, back this up, is that perhaps the, the idea of having to, to draw this and to step out a tiny bit of your comfort zone means that you were actually able to step a little bit more outside of your comfort zone and open up a bit more into your, your past and your feelings. Right, so you mean that actually can bring the team together a bit and sort of help them to get to know one another a bit better and that's really um, interesting. And just generally work together more effectively. Yeah, I think so. But there's also the the element of, of fun in it, which so it which is really interesting because if you're laughing together, you're sort of you're you're creating a better group, right? So here you're in a situation where you are working on something important. Um, it's it's a serious topic. You don't really want to get this wrong because there might be implications if you do. And at the same time, you can just laugh with each other and, and do some team building at the same time. And I really like that idea of combining those two. And there's also all the aspects of creativity and um, because you warm up when you're doing creative stuff, right? So if you're improvisation if you do improv theater you will do warm-up exercises before because you need to warm up a bit before you can actually uh, go on stage and do it and this is sort of the same way you're sort of warming up your brain a bit with trying to think of symbols for uh, for things like if i work with purchasing stuff how do i actually sim how do I make a symbol for actually purchasing something or, and that's a good warm-up exercise to think of what are the different scenarios are there or what are the different uh, solutions do we have to this problem so i have a question um can you recommend any any um resources where books or articles or something that where people can go and, and study if they want to learn a little bit more about using uh the technique of drawing together um as part of you know just discovering your domain and, and figuring out what to build and test mm -hmm. and so on i can't think of the name i, I know there is a, a book uh, on on sketch noting and I think that's a pretty good start because it's um, it sort of reminds us of the symbols which we are using at work. Yeah. It's sort of the same domain. Of is that about is that about learning to draw basic recurring symbols that you that would be useful in in in, the, in those drawing sessions? Uh, yes. Okay. So, what you if you want to practice sketch noting, you might get yourself sort of a library of symbols which you want to use. So you're usually drawing groups of people, for example. Yeah. And so what you could do to do a group, draw a group of people is to draw like the McDonald's M and then add uh, one arch in the middle of the two arches. Mm -hmm. And then you add a circles on top of, it, of each arch. And then you have like three people in the group. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. So it's really easy to... to um, to symbolize a group, um, it's just that if we're not used to it, it might take us a while to, like, to understand, okay, so what, how do I do this? 
but that's like a shortcut to to learning those basic symbols. Yeah, so it's, it's learning a language, isn't it? You you learn the vocabulary, and then and then once you have the vocabulary, then it becomes possible to communicate more quickly. I, I was thinking, so like we we uh, teach in our classes and uh, and often use ourselves a technique. We we kind of discovered we call it an example mapping, where you just use um, different colored index cards to try and kind of map out the examples for a story and the, and the questions that you have and um, <clears throat> and the acceptance criteria. And it's sort of, I think it sounds like it fits, it does a similar job um, and you do it at a similar time. One of the things that we've been encouraging people to do, just basically because of how I've seen it go um, in practice, is, is to do those sessions little and often. So like I say to people, if it, if it takes more than 25 minutes, the story is probably too big or you don't understand it well enough yet and you need to, to park some of the questions and go away and figure them out before you come back to a group discussion. So I sort of tell people to time box it at 25 minutes, half an hour, but it sounds like you're talking about a warm-up. Maybe does the if you're, if you're going to draw, do you think it, you, you go a bit deeper and it takes a bit longer and maybe you do this on what several stories or like a bigger story? How, how do you think it fits? Um, I think it might be that the first time it takes you a bit longer, the first couple of times. But I noticed that after a while you sort of have your, your standard images. So we have our sort of standard different user types. Um, and we together we have made a symbol for, for those. Um, so for example, I'm working with um, streaming television and we're uh, selling different kind of of packages of channels and we have one pack which is called the magic pack um, so what we did was for people who are magic pack users uh, we have a little stick figure with a with pointy wizard hat yeah. <laughs> and so each time we need a magic user we just draw the stick figure um, but it took us a while to figure it out the first time we said so how do we actually represent this it's a lot more powerful than saying as a magic pack customer though, isn't it? It is. And you could also, and I can think of this now, we could actually simplify it and just draw the wizard hat. And it's probably good enough for us because we know already that this is the magic pack user. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, yeah, this, this, this reminds me. Oh, go on, it's like, go on. Sorry. Do you this is what happens. This actually lag. reminds me. This is what happens with the lag. We talk it, over each other and I was like, it's really annoyed. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not annoyed. Matt. I, I was just. I was just going to keep. I was just going to keep trying to troll you. I'm not annoyed. Yeah. I'm really not annoyed. Not annoyed. Um, it reminds me of something I read recently about the, um, you know, the, the recent popularity of emoji uh, and how it shapes language and and some people, uh, I guess, uh, you know, teenagers mostly. Uh, have developed a whole language that is just based on emoji, and you can almost express anything with just emoji, with just symbols. Is that have you have you? Is it does it become a little bit similar to that? Yeah, that sounds like it. Maybe that's the thing for the distributed team. You just draw some emojis, and then you can add them up like building blocks. <laughs> yeah. And there's this other language that I recently heard about, um, which is like an Esperanto, but even simpler than Esperanto, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, it's a language that only consists of, I think, 
maybe just 50 or 100 words in the entire language, and that's it. And it's designed to be uh, tok, um, Tokapony or something. Um, what is it? Tokapony. I can't remember the name of it now. It's it's um, Pony Pony Coco. You should look it up. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> you should look it up. You should look it up first, and then speak no, about I think, it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll do that. We can cut this out of the whole interview. <laughs> no, no, it's got to yeah. stay in. Keep it in, Theo. <laughs> Tokipona, that's it. Tokipona. It's it's a minimal it's a minimal language like a pidgin, and it focuses on simple concepts and elements that are relatively universal among cultures. Uh, and it's got it's got 120 root words and 14 um, phonemes. So really, really simple, almost like a simple language. So can we make a new version of Cucumber that just takes like drawn images and you have to feed it like scenarios that are made of like wizard tv yeah. wi- wizard wiz- group of wizards money something yeah. like that well, you, I've al- we've already done that the, pr- the last the last release of gherkin actually supports emoji so you have uh, you so you can write given i can't remember what the symbol the symbol for given is but there is an emoji for each <laughs> keyword so you can write uh gherkin scenarios in, in emoji so, so maybe we can already do this. You know, I don't know if there is a if there is a wizard symbol. You know, but yeah. well, maybe you could just add your own library of of pictures in a sense. Yeah, and because they will have names, so you can just parse the names. It would be really fun to to see that to have to have actually those uh, those pictures. Um, That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> I will experiment with this. So just to be clear, though, right, because most of the drawings I tend to draw at work, because I'm a programmer, first and foremost, are um, like architecture drawings. You know, there's the 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 widget cobodulator takes widgets and calls the cobodulation engine and then saves the widgets in the database and there's sort of boxes with arrows. Like, those are the kind of drawings I'm drawing. But when you're talking about this, you're talking about drawing the scenario like i guess from the user's perspective so from the outside of the system is that right more, more towards that end so for example you would have the the wizard guy who goes over to uh, a kiosk and in the kiosk he can purchase uh, a package or something i don't know and then you finally can watch it on the television so that m- might be a scenario too yeah but you can also I sometimes sort of combined it into more simple things where you you start with the wizard guy and then you draw an arrow to a sketch of whatever happens or something. So it's not it hasn't always been a very strict given one then um, scenario. Shocking. I wonder if we <laughs> need to send the send the BDD police over to check this out. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that, this is. This is interesting. This is a podcast, and we can't really see those drawings on the podcast. But like, like Matt said, some people are used to drawing uh, architecture diagrams and class diagrams and sequence diagrams and so on. Um, and the more um, design-oriented people are used to drawing, um, you know, UI mock-ups. But the, the drawings you're talking about, they're neither, they're neither of those, right? This is more. This is outside the screen, outside the computer. Um, it's real people in the real world. Am I right? Yeah, it, it's sort of like 
it's symbols which are representing actions and and people. So it's not it's not the actual giri and it's not the actual architecture. It's um, trying to symbolize an action of um, buying train tickets. How do you how do you visualize buying train tickets into a picture? It's interesting. Like the last pod we did, we had John Ferguson Smart on, and he was talking about this pattern, which he has a, a Java framework for Cucumber automation code, which uses a pattern for abstracting that code to keep it manageable, which he calls the screenplay pattern. And the screenplay pattern means that the way that you write your scenarios, your, your Cucumber scenarios, is in terms always in terms of an actor carrying out some, I think he calls them actions or tasks. So there's always a person doing a thing. And then actually the code is organized that, like that underneath. So underneath in the code, in, in your case, if you're using Serenity, you would have a wizard um, Java class that you then fed it with these the tasks like visit kiosk, right? And, and you would, so you'd actually model that thing. And it seems like there's a lot of similarity there between those two ideas, like this idea of, and, and what I like about the pictures, the way you're describing them is it gets people away from talking about the solution domain. It gets them away from talking about either the, you know, the, the widget commodulator down in the, in the mid tier or the, the user interface and the, the shopping cart where they have to click the buy button, which a lot of, is also a mistake that a lot of people make in their scenarios. They, they, tie them to the user interface and this is much more about the problem domain and the way it gets experienced by people you know what would be awesome that would be to have not executable specifications but executable drawings yeah <laughs> just drawing as drawing as specification yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but then i have the results go back into the drawings you know and then it can make interesting error, error, not error messages, but error drawings when things are failing. Yeah, like wizard, where does it, wizard shakes his fist at you? <laughs> yeah. Magic missile. <laughs> it turns you into a frog. I hadn't thought about that. The fact that because we're talking about those pictures and those actions, that we're not really focusing on the user interface. We're not really focusing on on the implementation of it. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought of that. But I think you're right. I think it's it's puts it in another abstraction level which is interesting yeah and, and powerfully good i think i think anything is one of one of the things that, that can work well about gherkin is it is the more you can stay in the problem domain and stop being distracted by the solution domain the the easier it is to explore it and see those unknown unknowns because as soon as you start thinking solutions you just get distracted yeah is that it for pictures what else have you been doing what have you invented this year what amazing new thing have you invented now? Yeah, I, I've joined the dark side. Um, so I'm an agile coach now, which Ooh. is very scary. <laughs> have you ever heard of Have you ever heard of pair programming? I had a guy come up to me once after a pair programming workshop I did at a conference, and he said, this pair programming thing sounds amazing. I think I'm going to try it. And he handed me his business card, and his business card said agile coach. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I heard of it. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, right now I'm exploring part of 
part of it, which uh, I, I talked about a little already, the part of being in the uncomfortable zone and the power of putting people in that place and, and watching them sort of um, make, um, get closer to each other. It's really fun to see how, because the thing is, I, I worked in one team once where we were, we weren't just uh, co-workers going to a job every day. We were, we were more of a, a second family. So whenever you came to work, you would be in a situation where you could, you could be your entire self. You could come to work and uh, you had a bad morning because you had a fight with your kid or something. And you were on the verge of tears or something. And someone would just look at you and give you a hug because they noticed that something was wrong. And yeah. You could be happy or you could be sad or you could, you, you know, you could just, um, it didn't really feel like coming to work. It felt like I'm just, it's my second family. And ever since I've been in that kind of team, I've always wanted to be in another one like that um, because I feel it's so much easier to, to live if you can be yourself. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is find where, ways in which I can help people um, feel more comfortable. Um, they don't necessarily have to have to want to be in a second family at, at work, but I think that if they can feel a bit more comfortable with um, giving each other feedback or appreciations or saying that uh, someone in my family is sick, so I am not in the best of moods, or or those kind of things, I think it would they would have um, probably an easier time. Yeah, it's amazing how different teams can make you feel. Like it's okay to talk about those kind of things or not. I've I've had the same experience where the team I'm on now feels like what you're describing, um, which is a company that Matt and I co-founded. Um, but I've been in previous jobs where, yeah, it was absolutely not okay to talk about those things. It was not that it wasn't okay, but it just didn't feel natural. I agree with you. If you trust and feel comfortable around the people you work with, you produce better work results without doubt. The um the book I've been reading recently that uh, I, I actually bought it for Aslak and Julian at Christmas because I um I really like the ideas in it. There's some bits of it that are a bit strange to me, but the, this book Reinventing Organizations um I can't remember the name of the author Philippe Larue I think um and it's all about that essentially. It's all he keeps on mentioning the same idea of being able to bring your whole self to work. And that um, these really successful self-organizing companies like Morningstar in the States, where it's absolutely just part of the practices of the organization to make it complete, completely safe for people to be be themselves at work and, and sort of how that like actually does create great results. But it's also just a really kind of wonderful thing to do for the people that, that work there. So what kind of practices do you think are you, are you trying to put into place to, to help that to happen? Um, I've been working with one practice, which is um, the temperature reading, which comes from family therapist Virginia Satire. Satire? Satire? Um, and she's, she's a woman who sort of invented family therapy. Um, and it's an, 
it's like kind of a mini retrospective in a sense. So you'll go through five stages. And the first, the idea is to sort of, in a group setting, look on what happened before, um, how do you feel about it, and what's going to happen next, and how do you feel about it. So the first stage is appreciations. So you sit down and you, you give each other appreciations for, for things which happen. And we do this weekly. So you can say stuff like last week when you helped me with the test environment. Um, I was really grateful because I felt so lost. Um, and then you came in and you helped me. And now I know what's going on here. And this is, we used to do this on Monday mornings, which means that you would start Monday with getting appreciations uh, for your work, which is like amazing. And then there are other steps which are, you talk about excitements and wishes and you have uh, complaints with recommendations. So you're allowed to complain about something, but only if you have an idea on how to make it better. Uh, and I think that's one of the things to sort of practice and get into the habit of sharing your thoughts with other people. Um, and I have to be honest, the appreciations that we're giving each other are sort of like, um, they're not very deep um, because of our lack of practice with actually being genuine about our feelings. So it's, it will be like, hey, uh, yeah, you know, thanks for, for doing, a, for reviewing my pull request or things like that. Yeah, it's a good start, though. It sounds like a good start. And eventually something more meaningful will happen that somebody needs wants to appreciate the next week. Yeah. I really like that. We need to start doing that on Monday mornings, as like. <laughs> yeah, I used to work with a guy who invented uh, high-five development. Yeah, it's similar to what you describe. Um, basically, the principle was that every time you think somebody's done something good at work, you just give them a high-five. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. It's also good if people aren't really, if they don't really like each other much, and then they have sort of have to think of things which are good with someone else. And when you sort of continuously have to think of things that you actually like with someone, it's getting harder and harder not to like them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been fantastic talking to you, Ulrika, and um, I'm really looking forward to meeting you in, in London at QCOP in April. Uh, likewise, it's been very lovely talking to you. And um, yeah, thanks for coming to our podcast. Okay.